Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Thought. In this episode, I respond to a call from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Check out his podcast, link in the show notes. I talk briefly about the way that magic is presented in the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. And, of course, more from the world where we discuss the tales of the Dragon Slayers. So let's get to it. Hey, Jason here. Just want to comment really quickly on your latest episode. I, I know people talk about how the old games aren't designed well and thought wasn't put into them or play-tested and they were just throwing stuff at the wall. But when you look at AD&D, really... There's a ton of thought put into it. And the way you pointed out there, where the different character generation methods for PCs and for NPCs are really designed to have PCs be slightly better than the NPCs shows that, you know. It might not be the best organized set of rules in the world, but and it might contradict here and there, but Advanced Thunder Dragons First Edition definitely had a lot of thought put into it, a lot of effort put into it. And especially if we don't consider the 1.5 stuff, if we stop like at 84, we don't add in Oriental Ventures and Unearthed Arcana and all that stuff that came later, if we keep to the earlier stuff, it actually works pretty darn well and makes a lot of sense. Once you start adding some of the other stuff, it starts getting wonky. But any system, once you add enough stuff to it, starts to fall apart under its own weight. Anyhow, great episode. Really enjoying the play, the actual play, solo play, and looking forward to what you do next. Take care. Thank you for the call, Jason. Yeah, I think people do underestimate those old rule sets because of the way they're organized. But when you when you look at where they came from, it's really understandable why they why they are kind of organized or not organized the way they are, because these are rules that are, that are, they are working rule sets. They're not, well, here's a neat idea. Here's a neat mechanic. We're going to work with this. This is stuff that was put together and used for years and years before it was ever published in any form. So you have these, these established sets of rules that work. They worked for game groups for years, and then, you know, two guys got together and tried to write them all down and organize them in a way that made sense to them. And uh, you know, they're, they're it, based on their mindset, the way they played, based on their background as war gamers, so that they they were putting that into their into their rule set, the kind of rules that they had seen before. You know, they're established rules. And I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize exactly how established they were. It wasn't, here's a neat idea, put stuff together, play test it for a year or so, and then release it. It was years and years of experience. But then it looked kind of haphazard because it was. They had they really had nothing to go by. There were no other RPGs to base how their rules were set and say, well, we need to organize it like this or not organize it like this. And there's always been that argument in the wargaming community, you know, should the rules be put together in a way 
that are easy to reference or should it be put together in a way that are easy to learn? And how do you, you know, how do you take this, ex- this unique experience with our, with the, with the first RPGs, how do you take this unique experience and communicate it? But yeah, it's easy to underestimate them because, you know, just of the fact that they were, they were the first on the one hand, they were the first. So they look amateurish the way sometimes they're put together. But on the other hand, they're not amateurish because they work. You know, these are rules that work and work for people. Thank you for the call. I want to spend a few minutes briefly talking about magic in AD&D. Some things that that I ran across in the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide that just kind of struck me. One is, we talk about the three components of spell casting. We have the verbal, the somatic, and the material. And this is from the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, the spoken words trigger the release of magic energy, and the hand movements are usually required in order to control and specify the direction, target, area, etc. of the spell effects. When the spell is released, energy usually flows between to the prime material plane from the positive or negative material plane. To replace it, something must flow back in reverse. The dissolution and destruction of material components provides the energy that balances out this flow through the principle of similarity. Sometimes this destruction is very slow, as with the case of Druid Mistletoe. Those spells without apparent material components are actually utilizing the air exhaled by the magic user in the utterance of the spell. So this is this is something that, I mean, this is physics, is what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, Matter and energy can be neither created nor destroyed. You have to sacrifice something in order to in order to draw in magic to achieve a desired effect. And also there's a principle of similarity at work where the material components affect what the spell effect is going to be. I mean that's pretty that's pretty uh, astonishing concept. You know, a lot of times magic isn't really explained, it's just this land thing you're drawing energy you're moving it around or you're you're using you know you're just throwing your spell points around or whatever but this is you know this is this is talking about it like a science in a way and but it's also you know discussing what the parts do and when you know what the parts do then some stuff comes to to idea i mean if you don't have material components or if for some reason you can't draw on that energy from other planes, what happens? And it actually covers this a little bit too. It says, the release of the word sound stored energy is not particularly debilitating to the spellcaster as he or she has gathered the energy over a course of time prior to the loosing of the power. It comes from outside the spellcaster, not from his or her own vital essence. The power to activate even a first level spell will leave a spellcaster weak and shaking as if it were drawn from his or her personal energy. And a third-level spell would almost certainly drain, totally drain the caster's body of life. So you're drawing on this tremendous amount of energy from outside of yourself, but you have to replace it to balance it out. And you're using, but the material components, components are small. So this is, this is nuclear energy. This is, you know, little tiny, 
nu nuclei of atoms releasing amazing energy so you get an atomic blast level of energy from you know a magical perspective and thinking about that it that way you know there's all kinds of things you could do there could be thing there could be situations or areas where the energy is you know where you're blocked off from connecting to the positive and negative material planes or other planes of existence to draw energy from uh, if it's if you have spells, especially from say a cleric standpoint, that are drawing from particular gods, if you're cut off from those planes, do you get to cast spells? Can you use spells in certain areas? You know that's what what part of what part of it, uh, magic does anti magic affect? Does it block you from the planes? Does it block you from just simply being able to form the energy into something? Does it dissipate the energy as soon as it dis disappears? Does it keep the material components from degrading? Maybe there's different types of anti-magic. The other thing that struck me was how magic has a memory and knowledge from, and I get this from magic items, from magical books that are listed in AD &D, the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide in the treasure section, the manuals and the librums. Here's from the Librum of Gainful Conjuration, which is for neutral magic users. If a character of this class in alignment spends a full week cloistered and undisturbed pondering its contents, he or she will gain experience points sufficient to place him or her at exactly the midpoint of the next higher level. When this occurs, the Librum will disappear, and that same character can, can never benefit from reading such a work. Never again benefit from reading such a work. Any non-neutral magic user reading so much as a line of this will take 5 to 20 points of damage and be unconscious for a like number of turns and must seek a cleric to atone in order to gain, regain the ability to progress and experience. Any non-magic user perusing the work will be required to save versus magic in order to avoid insanity. Those characters going insane must receive a remove curse and rest for a month or have a cleric heal them. I mean, it knows when you read when you read through the manual. The magic knows what you are, and knows exactly what benefit to give you. Gives you the the, the enough experience points sufficient to place him at exact him or her exactly at the midpoint of the next higher level. So, if you read it at third level versus reading it at seventh level versus reading it at eleventh level, you need a different number of experience points to reach that point. It knows. From the manual Poisoned Skill at Arms, which is for fighters. Uh, any pilot and ranger will understand the work, but cannot benefit either class. So, just for fighters. Any cleric, including druid, thief, including assassin or monk, who handles, reads the manual, will not understand it. If a magic user, or including illusionist, so much as scans a few of its letters, he or she will be stunned for one to six turns and lose 10,000 to 60,000 experience points. As the work is so opposed to the magic using profession, only one person of the of the work, only one perusal of the work will benefit the same character. At, you know, again and again, these things they you read through them, you study them, they disappear, and you can never use them again. So all the other books of this same type will know that you use this type of book. Uh, let's see, there's one more thing from the manual bodily health, which gives you one point of constitution if you follow its regimen. 
The book disappears immediately upon completion of its contents. The one-point constitution is gained only after the prescribed regimen is followed. In three months, the knowledge of the secrets to bodily health will be forgotten. The knowledge cannot be articulated or recorded by the reader. I mean, that that level of it's almost like we're talking about AI here. You know, in a, in an era written in an era when there was no such thing as AI, when computers were just in their formative years. It's not just you know a program or something that anybody can benefit from. It's not just you know this useful item that moves around that maybe multiple people can use. It's not something that you can read and then improve upon or or re essentially recast, you know, turn into a scroll or something. It, you can benefit from it one time and then that's it. And for the ones that are based on class or alignment, if you try to use it, there are consequences. None of them read as deadly consequences, but they're virtually deadly consequences because you're in for a world of hurt and you're going to need a lot of help to recover from it. So I don't really have anything specific to say about all of this. I just thought these were some amazing concepts that, you know, in, I've read this stuff before. And of course I knew the stuff about how the books can be used one time and they disappear, but just the, the way magic is put together in this AD and D world is pretty remarkable when you think about it. And that was something I wanted to point out. I'd like to hear your point of view. Please let me know. And now, more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. We last left our Dragon Slayers. They had confronted two groups, two small groups of orcs that were the remnants of the larger group they had encountered on the road not quite four weeks before. Uh, uh, and for the record, these particular band, this particular band of orcs was called the Raging Snouts. Uh, they handily slaughtered most of them. They captured three who surrendered and were able to convince them to tell them what they knew about this particular level of the keep complex. With orc information about a powerful plant-type creature on this level, they took the orcs back downstairs and outside of the keep. After a little council of war, they decided to use the remaining part of the day to begin moving the treasure into the keep. Uh, they decided that the side corridor where they found the dead orcs, that most of the party would guard that corridor against anything coming through, and that they would actually put the orc prisoners in front of them where they could keep an eye on them. And Sir Gus would serve as the guard near the secret room where they were going to be stashing the treasure while the men-at-arms and, and the valets moved the treasure out of the wagons and off the horses. Quinn remained with Harl in a separate sort of dead-end corridor back behind where the party was stationed, sort of out of the way and out of sight, since Harl was still recovering from his near-death experience. That done, they set up for the night in that same kind of dead-end area. Uh, this is near the front of the keep. The way the entrance is, there's a, there's a main entrance. There are two small sections of corridor, I guess, to either side of the entrance. So I've decided these have like little arrow slits and stuff there. They were for 
keeping watch over the road and over the the front of the keep without actually being exposed. And to one side of that main entrance, that's basically all there is. There's a small section of corridor and then that corridor that juts out. So they're taking refuge there and then keeping watch on the rest so that they can rest for not rest overnight. After a morning meal, a small group of the horsemen took the orcs back to the fort to be turned in there. Uh, the remainder of the group, along with Harl and Quinn, would set up camp outside so they would not be potentially exposed to any of the dangers from within the rest of the keep slash dungeon while the party was upstairs trying to clear that top floor. Before the party returns to the upper level, I just wanted to say a couple things about how this level was set up. One of the creatures that I rolled up for a room there were Shriekers. This is what the orcs were talking about that made the terrible noise. And while reading the description of the Shriekers, it said that they were a favorite food item of purple worms and shambling mounds. Now, there was a room behind a secret door, behind a big door, and, and then behind a secret door, that, that the room rolled up just treasure. And it was on the very edge of this level, and I thought it would make sense that maybe since this was an older structure that the the humans had just turned into sort of a keep and made modifications to it was something that was older it's an older dungeon that part that since it, this room was on the outside of this upper level it would have crumbled in and it would have gotten vegetation into it uh, maybe a local creek floods into it and this would be a good place for a shambling mound to be so that it turned into instead of just being a room with treasure it's treasure with a shambling mound now, I don't know how smart this was because I didn't really look a lot at the shambling, shambling mound statistics before I got to it. And uh, shambling mounds are pretty pretty strong. Uh, their armor class zero. They have 8 to 11 hit dice. I'm going to let this one have 11 hit dice. And uh, weapons only do half damage to them. So it's a pretty big challenge. So... What I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and roll up this guy's hit points before the party makes its way upstairs because it could, there's several different ways it could encounter this creature and I haven't, I haven't done that. So here we go. Eight hit dice, eight rolls. That's a four. That's a one. That's a one. That's a four. Anyone else have dice that just, like to repeat numbers sometimes. It's a five. That's a six. That's a four. And that's a three. So let's see if we add all this up. Uh, five, 10, 15, 25, 28 hit points. Well, that's not terrible. It could have been a lot worse. The party proceeds back up the stairs. They find themselves in the short section of corridor where the opening to the left where they went before to encounter the orcs and a door a little further ahead on the right. The, the orcs had said that the shriekers were a ways in through that door into a 
chamber that has a secret door in it. And north of the where the orcs were through that opening, there is a large door that didn't appear to lead anywhere. Since the shriekers seem to cause a creature to show up with its noise, they decide that first they'll try to investigate that room that doesn't appear to have anything in it. Maybe they can can uh, rule it out as anything that's dangerous. So they head through the open corridor, through the 20-foot corridor, up the left hand of the Y intersection, and then through about 20, 30 more feet straight after that section ends, about 10 feet past the little corridor where they fought the orcs in the room, they come to a large door set in the wall. They open it up, and yes, it does indeed appear to be empty. They go to search. Let's check with Bernie. He rolls a two. He finds a secret door. This is where the Shambling Mound lives. Is he here? 30% chance to find in the lair. And with a 23, it's in there. So now we're going to roll for surprise. Is the party surprised to find the Shambling Mound? A roll of a five, they're not. Is the party, does the party surprise the Shambling Mound? On a roll of six, they don't. Roll initiative. The party gets... A six. Shambling Mound gets a one. The party goes first. Sir Gus yells at his comrades to get around behind it. This is a 20 by 20 foot room. This thing is about six feet wide. It's about six feet tall, six or seven feet tall. So they do have ample space to get around it. Gus wades in to draw its attention by attacking from the front. Uh, all members of the party need a 20 to hit this armor class zero creature. And with a three, Gus is not able to get through its tough exterior. Bernie is up next. He he gets around behind it. He's going to try for the backstab with his longsword. And with a 16, let's see, with his bonus of four, that is going to be just enough to hit. He's going to roll a D12, since this is a classified as a large-sized creature. That's a four, plus his damage of four uh, normally he would get to double that but because this creature takes half damage from weapons he'll just take eight points of damage next up is Finn he's going to strike with his trident he has a plus six to hit oh, that's the d12 that's not going to work he rolls a 17 so that's enough to hit uh, a trident against large-sized creatures does 3d3 to 12 points of damage. Let's see, that would be a d10 plus 2, wouldn't it? He rolls a 6, plus 2, that's 8 points of damage, plus his damage bonus of 7. That's a total of 15. Half of that is 8. So they've got it. Knocked it down to 12 hit points from its original 28. Now Edgar is going to cast Entangle. Now Entangle normally causes local vegetation to reach up and grab whatever's in the area. Since the creature itself is a plant, I'm going to say it just it's going to get bound up if it fails its saving throw. 
as a eight hit dice creature, its saving throw is going to be 13. So 13 or higher or lower, and it will save versus spell. And it rolls a 20. So it is bound up within itself. It's going to have difficulty moving. Let's see what the spell actually says here. Hold on a second. I'm going to pause this while I check the book here. By means of this spell, the druid is able to cause plants in the area of effect to entangle creature within this area. This, the grasses, weeds, bushes, and even trees wrap, twist, and entwine about creatures, thus holding them fast for the duration of the spell. If any creature in the area of the effect makes a saving throw, the effect of the spell is to slow its movement by 50%. So it would have slowed him down. It's holding him pretty tight. I'm going to rule it that this shambling mound can't move, but it can still strike out. It's still strong enough within its own self that it can that it can strike, but it's not necessarily going to be able to, to move around as if it's very restricted. And that will give the party. Uh, let's see if it's held if a creature is held by both legs or something like that they get a plus four to attack so they'll get a plus four in addition to any of their other bonuses I think I actually forgot to give Sven a plus two and Bernie a plus two but Bernie didn't need it and Sven would have missed anyway so all right on with the combat uh, that leaves cudgel cudgel is going to cast his magic missile spell it will automatically hit. It, the damage will not be reduced. And he rolls a three, so that's four points of damage. So now it is the turn of the Shambling Mound, and it is going to get... Normally it gets two attacks. Let's say it gets one attack. So one attack, and it can't turn to the ones that's facing it, so, that's behind it. So Sir Gus is in front. Sir Gus gets the attack. Uh, this thing is going to need, only needs an 18 to hit Sir Gus. So here we go. It rolls a 20. Okay, so, whew, all right. 2 to 16 points of damage. All right. That is a 2. And that is a 6. Uh, because the Chambler rolled 2 dice, Gus's armor will absorb 4 points. Of that eight points and only take four points of damage. Round two initiative. The shambling mound a five. The party a four. So it's going to go first again. It was going to go first. And it swings at Sergus again and with a 17 it just misses. And that's a really good thing for Sergus because even though his armor absorbed all that damage, if the shambling mound had hit with its second attack, any creature it hits with two attacks gets drawn into it and suffocates in two to eight rounds. So good, good for Sir Gus. So Sir Gus is going to strike back with a six. He misses. Bernie is going to be attacking from the back again with a 16. Bernie does it again. All right. D12. Plus four. Three plus four is seven. Uh, would double for backstab, but halved for the creature. So the creature is down to one hit point. 
So here comes Sven. Sven is plus six from strength and magic weapon, plus four because it's held pretty tightly, and plus two. So it's plus 12 all total for Sven. And with an 18, he only needed a little bit of that. And let's see, Sven is also attacking with a longsword. Has a plus seven bonus on damage. Well, and that's going to do it. So seven on the die, seven for damage, seven damage total. And the Shambling Mound goes down. Wow, that was a lot less deadly than I thought it was going to be. That's not what the Shambling Mound could be. Oh, wow. All right. Whew. So with the Shambling Mound down, the party gets a chance to really take their first look around the room. It's a 20 by 20 room. It has a door to the south. A search of the room. They discover three scrolls, a map, a potion, a ring, and a uh, staff. I think I forgot to mention after the last combat with the orcs when they opened, I said they opened the the chest. I didn't say what it was. They found 12 gems, two pieces of jewelry, a scroll, and a map. So pretty good to them. Tough, tough shot from the shambling mound there. But good thing. Sir Gus is wearing full plate because, wow. Sir Gus will lay hands on himself to heal a couple of points of damage. So after recovering from the battle and recovering the treasure, the party decides to head through the door to the south. Since they know the orcs obviously never made it this far, Ernie is going to check for lock, check for traps, and attempt to listen at the door to see if he can hear what's beyond it. So, checking for traps, he's 25%. He rolls a 61. He doesn't find anything. He doesn't know if it's trapped or not. Hear noise, he only has a 15% chance, and with an 86%, he doesn't hear anything at all. In AD&D, all doors are difficult to open. Sir Gus is going to take a shot at this. With his strength, he succeeds on a roll of 1 to a 5 on a d6. And with a 3, he opens the door. And the party finds themselves facing two giant beetles. And that's where we'll start next time. The opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans. And the closing music is Late Night Radio. Both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response. And it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me just I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com and that can be a regular email or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site 
on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me via my Google voice number, 864-209-1441. You can contact me via SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.